Hello readers, my name is Jason Jeffries and this is a bookend brought to you by Quail Ridge Books, Raleigh, North Carolina's trusted community bookstore. My guest today is Chase Purdy. Chase is a reporter for Quartz, where he covers the food industry, food technology, and biotech. He was a 2019 National Fellow at the New America Foundation. Chase is the author of Billion Dollar Burger, published by our friends at Portfolio Penguin. Chase, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it's an honor to have you here. And Chase, uh, first of all, thank you for writing this book and kudos for beginning a book about meat with the words, it's rare. <laughs> I, yeah, I hope I hope that was intentional. Um, but Chase, animal agriculture uh, is responsible for producing fourteen percent of the world's greenhouse gases. Tell us how you combat this with a five ounce patty of meat that costs three hundred thirty thousand dollars to produce. Right. Well, you know that sort of five ounce patty of beef that costs a lot of money to produce now is definitely a promising tool, one tool that we'll be able to potentially use to combat climate change. But, you know, to really think about what it can do, you have to know, I think, a lot about just what animal agriculture does. And, you know, you can definitely get as scientific as you want about measuring you know, the the how every step of the animal agriculture process just sort of racks up more and more and more in terms of the emissions that get released. But on its sort of basic level, it's pretty simple. We grow, we expend a lot of water and land and energy to grow a lot of plant protein that we essentially cycle through an animal that we then have to expend a lot of you know, in some cases, land, but water and energy uh, to get what is ends up being like less meat um, poundage than you get from the plants that you put in it. For instance, it takes like six pounds of grain to get one pound of beef, 3.5 pounds of feed to get one pound of pork, two pounds of feed to get one pound of chicken. So it's just this like very inefficient system that... Um, just winds up taking a lot of uh, a lot of energy to, to do. I mean, whether you're growing the grain, you have to ship the grain, you have to maintain an animal, uh, that all sort of stacks up at the end. I mean, it doesn't come without its emissions. And so the idea is if you can eliminate the animal that the plants get cycled through and the need to raise all and to grow all of that sort of plant protein, um, then you can actually and still have real meat then you can sort of work your way around that all that that massive fourteen percent number altogether, and so cell cultured meat is like the tool that I wrote about by which a lot of people you know are sticking um, a lot of optimism to. Right. Thank you so much, Chase. And I can walk across the street uh, from our bookstore here in Raleigh, North Carolina, and get a Beyond Burger at Target. Not to mention all of the restaurants and major airports, um, I guess when people were flying, uh, etc., where you can get one. I can get an Impossible Whopper at Burger King. Tell us, please, what these burgers are and how they differ from what is being produced at Just Laboratories, not just in substance, but philosophically. Yeah, totally. So, like, you know, of course, um, you know, it's kind of hard to deny how impressive 
you know, the Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods products are in terms of just, you know, they really are sort of this, like, next iteration of, like, the basic black bean burger. They are very convincing on a number of levels. Um, but on a fundamental level, they are very different from what I wrote about. Um, they are plant-based products. They are imitating the real thing um, on every level. They're trying to imitate meat in the way that it, the way that it cooks, the way that it feels in your mouth, the way that it tastes. Um, but at the end of the day, it's made of plant-based things. Cell-cultured meat is just different from the get-go. Cell-cultured meat is uh, made by basically taking the cell from an animal growing that cell out into fat tissue and into muscle tissue, you put the two things together and you have what is on a molecular and a nutritional level, the real thing. Um, and so while the two are definitely sort of philosophically aligned, these products are aligned to sort of get around animal agriculture, uh, they are fundamentally very different when you look at them under a microscope. Right. Thank you so much, Chase. And I used to write for Veg News Magazine in San Francisco, which was in the Outer Sunset at the time, and now I believe is in the Mission. Um, I cannot imagine a better place in the USA or the world even to have a vegetarian or vegan diet. How does Just Laboratories, uh, a place that is producing lab-grown meat, fit in with its neighbors in the city of San Francisco? So, Just is a basically a food technology company which was served basically you know essentially as the vehicle for uh the, the company is the vehicle that i use to sort of share this narrative with readers about what cell cultured meat is and sort of who is the brains and the the money and the politics behind it all and there are you know it's just one of about 30 companies around the world that are you know looking to bring cultured meat to market um but it is and has been for a long time at its essence a food technology company just because um, well, you know just isn't actually the first name this company had it changed its name uh, from Hampton Creek which some of your listeners might remember uh, kind of came up with a this vegan mayonnaise product back in you know the mid 2000s that the vegan or actually it was like 2011 I believe and it was um you know, got a lot of scrutiny from Unilever and there was this massive fight over whether or not the company could call this sort of plant-based vegan mayonnaise mayonnaise. Um, and it became this David and Goliath story of small, you know, mission-driven company up against sort of this Titan food company. And they ended up winning and that kind of set just off as to, you know, creating lines of products that, whether it's sort of the plant-based uh, condiments or whether it's vegan cookie dough or most recently they're like scrambled egg products um, that are made from mung, bean, mung beans. Uh, this cell-cultured meat is just the next line of foods that this company is looking to make. Um, but they definitely have like competitors in Silicon Valley along with them looking to make cultured meat and fish, probably like I would say, you know, four or five Right. Great. And then um, I want to spin off of your answer there for a moment um, when you were talking about the Just Mayo and the legal battle that ensued. Uh, can you tell us what kind of similar battles may be awaiting uh, Just and similar companies regarding the cultured meat? 
Right. So the biggest battle that they really face, I think, right now is how they label their product. Um, and this isn't new for foods, new foods in American history. Like the this country's history is replete with food fights. Um, and a lot of those food fights kind of revolve around what, you know, what one entrenched industry group thinks a new food type can call itself. So back when, you know, margarine came to the U.S. from France um, and, you know, gained a foothold in the, in the American market, the buttermakers were apoplectic about, <laughs> about marketing margarine off as butter. Um, you see more recently plant-based milks, you know, cashew milk, oat milk, almond milk. You see these sort of uh, the dairy industry really upset at the fact that these these companies that make this, these plant-based milks calling their product milk. And you see the meat industry um, already in the past years uh, having launched battles in state houses to get legislation passed that would prevent companies like Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods, these plant-based meat companies, from calling their products meat. And this is happening in Europe as well. Uh, and so I think, you know, one of the big battles that places like Just will face are what can they actually call this? Can they call it meat? I mean, they definitely contend that on a molecular level it is the real thing, but meat makers have made the case that, um, and by meat makers, I sort of mean your traditional animal agriculture folks. They sort of argue that in order to call something meat, it has to be sort of produced uh, in a traditional way. And you can argue over the word traditional a lot, and I think that's where that that, that case, those cases will go but you know that is one of the biggest hurdles that I think they'll be facing you know sort of immediately right uh, thank you so much Chase and before we head into the break um, I'd like to ask besides the environmental concerns surrounding animal agriculture uh, there's also animal welfare issues to consider when you're thinking about um, cultured meat can you give us a brief synopsis of this issue and maybe tell us how this does or does not affect the food supply chain? Yeah, it's not just animal welfare, actually, but, you know, I'll, I'll add on that toward the end of the answer. But, you know, in terms of animal welfare, yes, like humans on this planet kill about 65 um, billion land animals every year for food. That's billion with a B. And we kill, and because we don't know, you know, has much oversight over the fish industry. It's like ridiculously hard to pinpoint an exact number, but it's between one and two trillion with a T fish. So we kill a lot of animals every year to sort of satiate our appetite for animal flesh. And to a lot of people who really care about animal welfare, and, and that's part of their activism, um, that's that's abhorrent and cell cultured meat and plant-based foods and things like that these products these newer products are definitely ways that you can kind of tackle um, meat consumption if you can get rid of the need to kill an animal altogether then that's sort of accomplishing the goals that they have as ter in terms of like what it means to the larger food system i think that's almost better to bring this conversation less out of sort of the philosophy of animal welfare and just put it into perspective of COVID-19, which is very much 
you know, us giving cell cultured meat makers a sense of an added sense of urgency. Um, we've sort of watched over the last couple of months um, how the virus spreading through meatpacking plants uh, has just completely decimated the meat industry workforce. And the last time I ran the numbers was actually in April, but in mid-April, viruses in meatpacking plants ended up decreasing overall production of meat by around 37%. Um, and when I say meat, I mean beef and pork particularly. And has sort of exposed this like weakness that is inherent in our highly consolidated meat system in this country. Um, it exposes sort of the weakness in the physical setup of the meat system, but also the way that we treat the workers who are in the system too. Um, and that does have real implications because there is less meat being produced because of the virus. That means that now real you know, people everywhere who just go to go to the grocery store or go to restaurants and are used to just buying meat easily, maybe looking at higher prices or, or in some cases shortages. So the idea that you could take a technology like cell cultured meat, get around a lot of those sort of inherent issues with the current meat system gives it an extra boon for people in addition to the animal welfare element. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Chase. Listeners, we're going to take a short break for a word from our sponsor, and then I will be right back with Chase Purdy. The Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story. One that supports community. Listeners of Bookin can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Chase Purdy, author of Billion Dollar Burger, published by our friends at Portfolio Penguin. Chase, I have a thought experiment for you. Let's imagine that overnight, everyone in the world comes to their senses, agrees that there is no need for meat or other animal-derived product. What, then, happens to the animals? (laughs) Um, (laughs) Well, that... You know, as I've talked about this book in different groups, this is sort of an iteration of this question always comes up is what happens to all the cows? Um, And the reality is I don't know how to answer that question if you frame it as though the meat system would change overnight, like flipping a switch. Because that's never how uh, our food system has really worked as when new products come into it. And that's definitely not going to be how cell cultured meat works if it uh, does sort of catch a lot of traction. Um, so in terms of your question, I just don't, I don't know. In terms of like what's more likely the reality is that this would be phased in over time and you would see a decrease in animals but that would happen because market demands would change um so you would see like a reduction in the overall 
uh, number of animals that are being, you know, prepped and fattened for slaughter. And it wouldn't be something that I think people would notice as like a super dramatic shift. But it's a, it's an interesting thought experiment. I, I'd be curious what kind of goes through your imagination whenever you think about what would happen overnight. Oh, it's hard to tell. You know, I've gone everywhere from imagining, you know, um, these organizations that will kind of foster animals and make homes for them to imagining the the volume of animals in the world and like resorting to some type of animal farm uh, fantasy. You know, it, it's hard to tell. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, um, <laughs> you know, I saw the interesting case being made on Twitter the other day that, in fact, the most ethical food system that we could create would be to grow cell cultured meat for the vast bulk of like the meat that we eat as Americans but then also just sort of eat venison because the deer population in so many places is so is just exploding Mm. and that is a way to sort of just kind of maintain like biodiversity that would be like the the clearest path forward which is a field from the question you asked but just an interesting thing that someone brought up the other day yeah absolutely thank you so much (laughs) um chase you mentioned um in your book that it is easy to imagine cell cultured meat as the stuff of science fiction and you actually allude to works of william gibson and margaret atwood uh, because we are a podcast that is of a bookstore. Can you tell us about these literary works that allude to something like a cell-cultured lab-grown meat product? Right. So it was in, um, you know, in Atwood, she, in Oryx and Crake, she refers to, you know, a product called Chicken Up, which is essentially kind of a chicken that has been engineered to kingdom come to uh, basically appeal to, like, our needs uh, on a very, you know, our, our sort of carnal needs for chickens. So instead of it looking like a chicken, it's actually been bred and, and engineered so much that it, like one chicken would have multiple breasts or lots of wings but no head. Um, so this kind of grotesque idea of, of humans shaping animals into into something that they would never be naturally um, in order to get the most meat out of them which frankly isn't that far off from some of the cases of what happens today. I mean, there are, um, there are actually very, it's, it's strange if you go to like one of the big chicken breeders in America today, um, Cobb Vance is one of the companies, for instance, you can literally go onto their website and they have the different types of chickens that they've genetically, you know, that they've bred to be exactly what we want. Um, and they sort of label them like their car models. You can get like the the Cobb Vance 400, which has like smaller wings, gets bigger, faster, um, but yields like slightly less meat than the Cobb 400, which maybe is like it's really fat. It takes a long time for it though, longer, um, but you get way more meat from it. Um, that is literally how we are, you know getting our meat in this country. And so that's not that far off from Margaret Atwood. And then when you think of just Gibson, um, as the neuromancer that I was referring to in the book, and, and that there's a scene where a character has the opportunity to eat um, real meat, which has been like, in, in, the, in the work, it was just tough to get a hold of real meat, quote unquote. 
Um, and the character sort of remarks like, you know, give me that steak. Uh, you don't you realize this isn't the you know that stuff. Um, which makes me think of self-cultured meat because lots of it is grown uh, inside sort of these beer, um, sort of uh, craft brewery-looking setups with, uh, you know, these big tanks that are bioreactors. So that stuff kind of made me think of that. So this sort of new high-tech meat-related things have been alluded to in in works. Um, But the point I was trying to make in the book was that you know, it was actually well before Atwood and well before Gibson that this was an idea that was hatched, honestly, by a man, a Dutch man, um, when he was on the verge of starvation in a prisoner of war camp and during World War II. So it's not actually that far. Um, it actually is pretty far from the realm of science fiction. Right. Um Let's talk now, Chase, about William Van Elen. Um, Ingrid Newkirk wrote that she will one day be able to eat meat again because of William Van Elen. This is no small feat. Uh, Ingrid Newkirk, as I'm sure many of you know, is the president and founder of PETA, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. Can you tell our listeners who are unaware who is William Van Elen? Yeah, William Van Elen is a very interesting figure that is not mentioned probably as much as he should be whenever reporters like me write about cell-cultured meat. Uh, He was a Dutch man who was uh, born and raised in uh, Indonesia, which at the time was a colony of the Netherlands. And... um, he grew up there with his his parents and had several siblings, all of whom went off to do interesting things with their lives. And But their lives, like so many others, kind of got caught up in the Second World War. And uh, when Japan invaded uh, Indonesia, uh, the Van Elens were caught up in it. And Willem Van Elen, who had signed up to fight, uh, was ended up being captured and was a prisoner of war for a while. And it was during this period where he was a prisoner of war that he sort of witnessed uh, some of the brutality in internment camps. And some of that brutality included just going for long periods of time with very, very little to eat. And he watched people in front of him sort of lose the grasp over their own mental faculties as they faced the elements of hunger. And when the Japanese ended up surrendering and when Van Elen was able to not just you know, uh, when he was not rescued from Christopher War Camp, but whenever he ended up going to the Netherlands <clears throat> to study medicine, uh, he was walking through um, one of the research buildings of his school, and he saw people culturing cells for um, what I believe was like growing skin. Uh, and this was sort of to, as a way of uh, um, basically helping someone who had who had gone through a severe burn. Um, But while everyone around him, his fellow students, were kind of marveling at what was happening, he has sort of said that all he could think about was, well, could you eat this? Um, And it was a sort of his desire to figure out a way that no one would ever have to go hungry was what forced him to kind of make those connections in his own brain of, could you sell culture uh, could you use cell culturing to grow real animal meat? And if you could, 
you could probably do get a lot of it pretty quickly. And so he then embarked on this whole life adventure of trying, oftentimes in vain, to get researchers sort of on board with his idea, people who knew a lot more about the science than he did. And um, pretty much up until the day he died, he focused so much on, you know, getting the scientific community to rally around this idea. Right. Thank you so much, Chase. And finally, uh, the end of this book has a a fun section where your mom visits Just Laboratories. They should maybe consider hiring her to do some of their marketing, it sounds like. Um, (laughs) Which leads me to ask the question, what are the challenges uh, of marketing cell cultured meat as you see them? Yeah, you know, they asked, um, the CEO of Just turned to my mother at some point in that chapter and said, you know, and I grew up in Louisville, Kentucky, and, you know, they asked her, like, what, what do you think it is that's keeping, that would stop people from Louisville, Kentucky from trying cell cultured meat? And my mom gave like a very sort of commonsensical answer that was basically like, well, if people think that it's man-made meat, that's going to make them a little bit more nervous or cautious about trying it, or it might just turn them off to the idea entirely. And so the, the question I think that a lot of these companies are grappling with is sort of this question of like how do you how do you present cell cultured meat with all of its like potential upsides not just for the climate but for animal welfare and for combating antibiotic resistance and for improving um you know improving on like a meat system that has proven to be not equipped to handle things like viruses how do you take this like super promising food this new food and introduce it to the public imagination um and not make it so that people's first thought is gross but to make them just open-minded to trying it and you know that's sort of where the certainly that's out of my pay grade figuring out how to do that uh but that is sort of what the big issue is because at the end of the day this is like it is a new food it's a food that not only is it like new but it is seeking to replace something that is deeply ingrained in like our cultures um whether you are uh, used to, I think in the book you talk a lot about, you know, my mom, we grew up and she would make like pot roast. I mean, that's, that's a dish that like was passed down to her. It's a, I mean, it's a very common in America, but like what happens to like the pot roast if you embrace cell cultured meat? Um, what happens to someone who wants to make Julia Child's beef bourguignon recipe? What happens if you want to have a clam bake? I think that there are lots of these sort of questions around culture and like that will help define what this food is and how people give them a cue for how to approach it or how to think about it. And that just takes a lot of work. It requires a lot of like narrative heft and a lot of real, um, honestly, it will probably require a lot of crafty ways to introduce someone to this so that they feel comfortable ordering it at a restaurant and just taking a bite and giving it a shot right on thank you so much chase and thank you for writing this fantastic and illuminating book 
Listeners, I've been speaking with Chase Purdy, author of Billion Dollar Burger, which is published by our friends at Portfolio Penguin. Chase, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. It's been great. Once again, I would like to thank Chase Purdy for joining me. Copies of Billion Dollar Burger, published by our friends at Portfolio Penguin, can be ordered at www.quailridgebooks.com with free shipping. I would also like to thank our sponsor, Libro.fm Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN. That's B-O-O-K-I-N in the promo code space to get two months of audiobooks for the price of one and support your favorite independent bookstore in the process. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this has been Bookin'.